I want to begin by saying thank you to the many of you who reached out and said that you were praying for me as I finished preparing for this message. Um, a couple of people sent me text messages this morning to, to say they were confident the Lord was going to work through his word, and that was just so encouraging to me. And I believe that God has something to say to us through his word this morning, and I believe that it'll be empowering, encouraging, helpful. The word of God is always helpful, even when it's sometimes hard to hear. And I want to begin in the Gospel of John. If you have a paper Bible, find it it's towards the front. It's a pretty big book. You can use the, I love to use the, the little thumb method. Just look at the top, find where it says John. It's going to be in chapter 17, reading just a couple of verses for our scripture reading. And as you turn there, I want to invite you to think with me about the joys of parenthood. The, the real joys, not, not the challenges or the hardships or frustrations or stress or any of that. Think with me for a moment about the real joys of parenthood. The past couple of months, I've, I've been working on a, a project to make a couple little bookshelves for our house. I bought some rough cut wood, learned that I don't know anything about working with rough cut wood, um, and that was fun and exciting. But one of the things I've done for the first time is I've taken my kids with me to work on these projects. Uh, so I, I for the first time, showed Isaac how to use a miter box. I stopped, started, you know, see those little pictures on either side of the blade that has a hand with fingers chopped off? He's like, uh-huh. That's what this can do if we do it wrong. He's like, oh. So I was like, so you got to listen, and we got to do it right. And we were practicing, and we're teaching how to handle some power tools. Yesterday, I took Rosie with me, and, and uh, I don't have a garage. I, I live in a trailer on the south side of town here. And so I've been doing this work at my parents' house, and the, the drive over and back has been almost as much fun as the projects itself. Uh, Isaac can read now, and so he's reading every stop sign that we pass and we're singing songs really loud. Uh, my favorite guitar player is a guy named Phil Kagi, and he wrote a song a couple of years ago called Stay Home Baby, which as a musician, he spent so much of his life on the road. Uh, he, he's been married to his wife happily for a long time and wrote this song about how I'd just rather be home with you, and that is Rosie's favorite song. So, so we just belt out Stay Home Baby in the car while we drive, and it's a joy and a delight as a dad, partly that we share in the love of great electric guitar music. Uh, I, I'm so happy that they like what I like, at least now. Um, and also to create and to make things and to begin to teach my kids the joy of creation and the love of music and woodworking and even just reading speed limit signs. And I want to say that that joy, children, creation, is a large part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And to prove that, I want to take you to a place in the gospel where Jesus kind of pulls the veil back and lets us see into the mind of the Trinity. We believe that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they are eternal. The Father has always been Father, and the Son has always been Son, and the Spirit has always been Spirit. They live as one God in perfect unity, and their joy has always existed. And Jesus gives us a glimpse of that joy in John 17. I'm just going to read the first five verses says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Some people say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus clearly claimed to exist before the world existed. The beginning of John's gospel opens up saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And a little bit later in chapter 1, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And in these verses here, you see the delight that a father has in his son and the delight that a son has in his father. I think the closest we can get to it is when we watch our kids do what we've taught them to do and we share in the joy of their success. If you've seen one of your kids play soccer and they score a goal, you're so proud of them. You're giving them praise. You're giving them glory. You're awed at their ability, even if it's pretty simple and not that special. Partly because they're yours and partly because it is special. They're growing. They're able to do things that they couldn't do earlier. And as they succeed, you share in that. One day they'll turn around and say, man, thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. You hope for someday the, the, the phrase, man, I, you taught me everything I know, right? And whether or not you get that, who knows? The truth is, we live in kind of a broken world. I'm not talking about everything parenting actually is. I'm talking about the good things right now. Because the good things and the best things are a reflection of the perfect thing that exists in the joy of the Father in the Son. And here's what I want you to know, is that God loves us. God loves us. Because in the joy that the Father and the Son shared before the world existed, they created. They loved so much that their love exploded into the glory of the universe. Planets and stars, the beauty that we see every day, the beauty that we enjoy in, in trees and in bookshelves and in all the things that we love is a product of the eternal joy that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share. And the Bible says that in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the appeasing sacrifice for our sins. You see that in this prayer here, when Jesus says that his mission is to give eternal life so that everyone who calls on the son shares in this eternal life between the father and the son forever. And the Bible says that we know this love because God first loved us. And we understand what the Father is like because he's a father so full of love that he was willing to sacrifice his son for guilty sinners. So think about this. Okay, The, the, the mind-blowing thing about the doctrine of the Trinity is the fact that love is eternal. You have to have another person in order to be a loving person, right? You can't be locked in a cell and say, I'm so full of love. For what? For who? It doesn't make sense if you're alone. But if God exists in three persons, it's possible that love truly is eternal. And that his love explodes into creation. And that we know his love. Because God sent the son whom he loved for all of eternity to die so that guilty rebels could be forgiven and share in that eternal love. Now here's where I want to go from there. I want you to know the love of God. I want you to think about the fact that the Bible teaches that we are made in the image of God. One of the ways we share in that image is in our joy of creation. And everyone has it in some extent, in some different, like we all channel it in different ways, right? Chris channels it musically. I channel it poorly in several different directions. I like to make bookshelves. I'm terrible at it. It's one of those things that it's, it's a hobby because there's no way that I could ever make money at it. But I love it. It's part of being a creative person. Uh, Lauren churns out hats 
faster than anyone I've ever seen with, with yarn. She, she uh, crochets very, very fast. She'll do a hat, a TV show if she wants to. Um, that's part of her joy of creation. We love stories. She, she's done NaNoWriMo. Where, where, maybe you've never heard NaNoWriMo. It's National Novel Writing Month. November is National Novel Writing Month. She, she has chosen to write novels in November. Not since we've had kids. Not since we've had kids, right. Uh, but her joy in creation, it in part manifests as an author. And everyone shares in that joy in one sense or another. Man, woman, male, female, all of us are made in the image of God. And so what I want to do and meditate on this morning is how we equally share in this image of God and what the word of God says to us as a culture that's very confused about what it means to be made in his image and is very confused about what it means to be male and female, and, and some people even don't believe that they are male or female. And, and why is that even a big deal? Why should we even care? And I want us to wrestle with this this morning, because ultimately, it will touch us at a national level, at a local level, at a church level, and at a family level, and at a deeply personal, private level. And the word of God can help at every stage. And so this morning, I want to lay a foundation before we even go to 1 Timothy to talk about what it means that God has made humanity to reflect his loving, creative image. The image that you get a glimpse of here in John 17 that the Father shares with the Son and they have this eternal glory, this eternal joy. That's what God has created us to enjoy forever. And you can see it going all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the easiest book to find in the Bible. It's right at the beginning. Flip past the cover, flip past the index. I'm going to read you a couple of verses from Genesis chapter 1. Some people might wonder, you know, how seriously do you take Genesis? How literally do you take Genesis? That is an issue for another day. I believe firmly that God is the creator. Someday I might make a couple short videos about, you know, my thoughts on what Genesis means and, and how it interacts with science. For this morning, I'm not even going to go there. All I want to do is say, I believe that God created. And I believe that this is the word of God. And I believe that the way he created changes for all history how we relate to each other and to him. And so Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, says, Then God said, Let us make man, and, and it means mankind, man and woman, in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then drop down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. In the strictest sense... I do not believe that God the Father is either male or female. Jesus says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And critically, says it several times just in these few verses at the beginning of the Bible, we are made in his image. And if anyone wanting to be some sort of sexist monster tried to say that men were made in God's image and women were somehow less, you cannot miss it in verse 27 when it says, male and female, he created them in his own image. And that it was good. That it was good. 
Think for a moment if God actually were male or female. Now, he's a spirit, so I don't know what, what exactly that would mean. But it, if it were true, and it's not, that would mean that one of us would not bear his image to the same degree. In fact, how many of you heard of like the Da Vinci Code and, and early Gnosticism in Christianity? The, so the Da Vinci Code presents a version of Gnosticism that, that pretends like it's actually a feminist religion. It's not. That is a hilarious lie for anyone who knows anything about Gnosticism. Because the truth was, Gnostics actually taught that women were a distortion of the good creation of men. And that they would drag you down. So really holy people wouldn't have anything to do with them. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches male and female, we are both made in the image of God. And that's celebrated all throughout Scripture. But already I'm saying something that is, in our culture, controversial. Some people would even say hateful. Because I'm leaving out people that don't fit into those categories. Or that would say, I don't feel comfortable being described as male or female. And so I want to pause for just a moment and say... Whoever you are, however you feel, know two things. Number one, God loves you. God loves you deeply. And number two, you are made in the image of God. However comfortable you are with your body or however you feel internally, God has made you in his image. He has made you a person who loves to create. Maybe, maybe you are an artistic person. Maybe you've got some mechanical skills. Whatever it is, he has made you in his own image. And then I want to lovingly, carefully add that the Bible describes the truth that he has made us in two distinct genders. Now, that's not a, a popular message, and, and many people might feel like it's irrelevant, uh, but it's not. The Bible teaches that men and women are made for relationship. And so while we love to create together, part of the way that humankind reflects God's image is that in our most intimate relationship, we multiply. You know, my kids are starting to get to the age where they ask questions like where babies come from. We, we haven't been too detailed or anything like that, We're hoping to be super age appropriate. We want to be the ones that teach them things. We don't want to be playing catch up because they've learned it from someone else, maybe in an inappropriate way. Um, but when a man loves a woman, they make babies. And part of the joy of being in God's image, see, if you believe that the Father loves the Son for all of eternity, and that the Spirit is the sharing of their joy, and that they love and enjoy their presence so much that they create everything, and that man and woman are made in the image of God. When we love one another, our joy and love and union ideally produce children. Now, I recognize a couple things. Some people are single and never get married. So, so am I saying they don't bear the image of God? No. Not in a million years. We are all in the image of God. Jesus Christ never got married. And he certainly is the perfect image of the Father. Not only that, some people who are married are incapable of having children for different reasons. And so then the question is, are, are they not perfectly reflecting the image of God anymore? No, they are made in the image of God. All of us are made in the image of God. The truth is, all of us are broken. Some of you have experienced the brokenness of divorce. And so you can firsthand testify, you know what, I got married and it was terrible. Some of you who have been married and stayed married, if you're honest, would say, marriage has its highs, marriage has its lows. To say that we're perfectly reflecting the image of God simply is not true. Because even for those who, who are maybe sharing in the joys that God has created us to enjoy, they would say, you know what, we're both broken people and it's hard. Marriage is actually really hard. 
And so the truth is, sometimes those who are skeptical about Christianity look at the church and say, you just want everybody to be like you. Like you think you're perfect and you think you've got it down and and everybody should look just like you. And the truth is, that's not Christianity at all. Christianity says we are all deeply broken. But the good news is, God loves us. And God sent his son to die for our sins and to bring healing and hope. And the hope of Christianity is not following a set of rules to have a happy life here because in this world you will have trouble. Jesus himself promised that. The hope is that Jesus is a good and a faithful savior and that no matter what you endure here, one day you will be full of joy and there will never be sorrow again because your sins will be forever wiped clean and your brokenness will be forever healed. And you will never be alone. And you will never be tempted to sin ever again because you will enjoy the fellowship of God so much in such a rich and a deep way. Nothing could ever tempt you away from the delight and the eternal joy that exists between our good Father who loves his children and delights in them in a far more perfect way than you and I could ever delight in our kids. The hope of Christianity is not that everybody's straight and that everybody has clearly defined gender boundaries. The hope of Christianity is that God loves us no matter how we feel inside and that God has called all of us to follow after Jesus Christ and to trust his saving blood and the eternal life that he gives us. So my first point this morning is that God has made us in his image. And that being made in the image of God means that we share in his creative joy and that in the most intimate of relationships, our joy overflows into the creation of other little image bearers. You know, if you look at the next generation, whoever has them, say, oh, he's got your chin. Oh, he's got her eyes. We're not sure about that nose. Maybe it's a mixture of the two. But our little kids, they look like us physically. They bear our image. And the scripture teaches that we bear the image of God in how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we create, how we enjoy. And the second point that I want to make today is not only that we're made in the image of God and that we have this creative part of us, but that God has made us male and female. Verse 27 says it in such a clear way. And I'm so thankful for this verse. Because it so clearly teaches the equality of men and women before God, that we are equal in sharing his image. But at the same time, it's a verse that can cut some people who maybe feel like they don't fit into this gender binary, that that maybe believe that it is a social construct. And so I want to pause for a moment and and say a couple of things. And I'm going to do this in two parts. I'm going to say a little bit of it now, a little bit more at the end of the message when I want to actually apply it. But, but some of the reason that I think this is hard and painful is our confusion over gender didn't start 20 years ago. I think it started about 70 years ago. And so often, the picture-perfect family that we had presented to us on TV, like in Leave it to Beaver, it messed up who men and women actually are. If you look at the Bible to see how men and women function and relate to each other, looking at like Song of Solomon, looking, looking at the book of Proverbs and, and like Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman has a job. She's industrious. She works hard. She's skilled. She's educated. And that's true throughout the entire Bible. She doesn't have to stay home and make her husband a sandwich. And some of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into is that men were genuinely abusive and created the problem by failing to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I believe so much of our culture's confusion today is because men have not been men. And in response to that, divorce rates have skyrocketed, and we've gotten confused about what sexual love is and should be. And because of that, today... We're so confused, we don't even know if male and female are legitimate categories as a culture. Now, I'm saying to you as a pastor, I believe the Word of God teaches that it is clear. But it also teaches 
that we're fallen and we're broken. And so part of what I want to say as God has made us male and female is that our culture does not reflect this the way that it should. And if you feel like I don't fit into the expectations of culture very well, it's probably at least in part because the expectations of culture are not always fair. Um, my daughter Rosie is, is named after a professor that I, I love. She challenged me so much at, at Moody Bible Institute. Her name is Rosalie DeRosay. Brilliant woman. She, she was the first woman to be hired on staff at Moody Bible Institute. And, and she has served there for like 60 years now. Um, sharp, brilliant, and challenged so many of my assumptions as a young man. Uh, taught me to love literature. Uh, if, if you can ever uh, say that you have enjoyed a message, uh, you actually owe a debt to her. Uh, not that I'm good at this, but that I'm not as bad as I would be if I hadn't taken her lit classes. And as she was talking to us and kind of pushing us on what we believed about gender within the church and within the home, she said something that made me so mad because she said, you know what, hey, like some of our traditions, like at Thanksgiving when all the men sit down and watch football, they're good, they're, they're, they're fine, and I hate football. And I always have. So if I'm in a room full of guys and they're talking about football, I'm like, oh, uh, we, have, we have the Lions. I've heard of Barry Sanders. And that's about it. I, the game doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I didn't learn about it as a kid. We didn't watch it on TV. You know, we watched the Super Bowl for the commercials and that's it. But in our culture, men love football. And when men get together, they talk about football. But you know what? Human history has existed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years without football. Men were manly men before the game existed. It's possible to be a man and to not care about the sport. But so much of our identity and culture, I believe, is wrapped up in things that are inconsequential because the things that do matter, we're scared to talk about. So we're going to talk about the stuff that doesn't matter. We're going to put our identity over here where it's safe. We're going to say, yeah, this is, this is a guy thing. This is a man thing. Part of the reason this is a hard conversation is it's easy to dismiss the stuff that genuinely has nothing to do with being male or female. And our culture is deeply confusing. So if you feel like, man, I don't really fit in this, I would blame the culture before I blamed how God made you. The truth is, the way that God has made us as male and female, we are at a bare minimum physically different. We are physically different. Every cell of your body has been marked as male or female. Even if you don't feel comfortable with how culture expects you to dress or act, you are physically male or female. E even if your body is in some sense uh, not how God designed most of us to be, you still have a physical sex. And some of that manifests in behavioral ways. Uh, Lauren was listening to a podcast about kids because we have kids and we're always trying to figure out how to be better parents because we have a lot of days where we're like, oh, shoot, you know, there's no hope. Um, and our oldest is only seven, so you can appreciate it. Alan Highfield has said to me, little kids, little problems. Big kids, big problems. Um, so my kids are all little, so I have little problems right now. But she was listening to a, a podcast and they're talking about how little boys uh, in utero get their first giant dose of testosterone, and it changes how they behave. They, they are more aggressive. Uh, if you listen to my son, Jack, I promise I am not teaching him to be violent. <laughs> but he will punch you in the face, cut your head off with a sword, all kinds of stuff. Now, I will admit that I do read them fairy tales that do have swords and things like that, but the extreme that he takes it, and, and he was describing to me yesterday how he was going to kill this bad guy, and the bad guy's dad was there, and he was going to kill the bad guy's dad too. And I was like, shoot, man, like we got to talk about some mercy. <laughs> He's three. My little girl, Rosie, Again, we are not, like, forcing them into these molds. My little girl, Rosie, uh, we had her at our homeschool group last Tuesday. Tuesday's my day off. I go with them. I volunteer. Actually, they pay me. Uh, I, I 
lead a little group of kids as a, as a tutor, and uh, we were getting ready to leave. You know, we had lunch there, and, and Rosie was missing. I couldn't find her. And, like, the kids had gone outside with some supervision to play outside. She wasn't outside, and she wasn't inside. So finally, I looked in the classrooms where no one is supposed to be, and she and two other little girls had this little chalkboard, and they're drawing pictures of each other. They're three little stick little girls, and writing BFFFFFFF, like best friends forever, 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 forever. It's like the most adorable thing. She's not punching them in the face. She's a little girl. She's different. Now, she will wrestle. I mean, I wrestle with all my kids. I want them to be strong. I want them to be tough. But the way that she is is different than how my boys are. And it's not because we're telling her she has to be that way. And, and I'm definitely, I, I'd kind of like my boys to tone their violence down a little bit. But part of how God made little boys is they get a dose of testosterone in utero. It makes their bones stronger. It makes their muscles bigger. And they get another dose at the age of four. So, so when little boys turn into monsters at four, there's a, there's a physiological reason for that. And then they get another giant dose of it at 14. So when their muscles grow and their bones are denser, if you take a man that's 150 pounds and a woman who's 150 pounds, their strength levels are different. There's a physical difference. No matter how you relate to the culture, no matter how you feel inside, your body is one way or the other. And now that's almost hate speech in our culture today. But I want to say that it's true and that if we try to go against how God has made us, we will miss out on so many good blessings. So my second point for today is that he has actually made us male and female as part of how we reflect that image. Not that God himself exists as male or female. Uh, he doesn't. Although Jesus, the son, when he became a man, he, he was a physical human male. But prior to that, we don't really have any insight into God's actual gender. All we know is how God has described himself in Scripture and all we understand is that we are made in his image and that as part of that, he has made us equal image bearers, but different. All of us experience gender in brokenness in one way or another. This is why women complain about men. How many of you women have ever complained about a man? All right, I see a couple bashful hands showing. Some of you are not admitting it, but I guarantee it's 100%. All right, men. How, how many of you men have, it, yep, hands, hands all over the room. This is, <laughs> and we do it in broad, sweeping, general categories, right? Women, right? Men, like, we both do this. This happens. Why? Because we experience gender in broken ways. Men really are the worst, and so are women. This is why marriage is hard. This is why singleness is hard. This is why we struggle with our sexual identity and our feelings. And here's why it matters most. Because scripture teaches that God has made us this way so that we can understand how Christ relates to the church. Paul says this in Ephesians 5, as he talks to husbands and wives, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this passage next week, he says, he's talking about a mystery, and he's explaining Christ's relationship to the church, that Christ is eternally faithful to his bride, the church, that Christ loved her sacrificially to the point of death, and that Christ shares his life and all of his possessions with her. He delights in her. And so as we understand the ideal of marriage that even the happiest married people don't live up to, and that those who are single and struggle with their identity feel like they're light years away from, whether you're close to it or far from it, if you're close to it, you're like, man, I get that. I like that flavor. I understand that music. I get that. I understand it. If you're far from it, 
it makes you weep because you miss the good thing that God made you for, but for different reasons, you're not experiencing it in its goodness. And there's a real tragedy in the fact that you don't enjoy the fullness of God. And the good news is, Christ has come so that we have hope. Whether you're in a marriage that you wish were better, whether you're single and you wish you were married, whether you feel like God's commands to you to be sexually pure are actually deeply harmful and you feel like he's been unfair, Christ has come so that you can have hope. And the hope is not in marriage or a relationship. The hope is in the forgiveness of sins and the eternal joy that the Son has shared with the Father from all of eternity past. Not only did God make us in his image, not only did he make us male and female, he made us and blessed us. And I'll say more about this next week. I want to talk a little bit about Song of Solomon um, and a little bit about Ephesians 5 and the goodness and how God has created this way. But you can see it in our text today. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And and although the world is broken and sin has entered the world and broken us, we still do this to an extent. You know, I I try to exercise dominion over, over my little plot of land where my trailer is on the south side of Holly. Weeds rebelliously grow everywhere. There's brush and sticks and stuff breaks and and we have to sometimes tear it down and start over. Sometimes ignore it for months on end. But we are to exercise dominion in the places we live by fixing the stuff that breaks. By planting gardens, by creating art. And it's good. As hard as being a parent is, some of the sweetest moments of joy and delight are in holding babies. And teaching kids how to love great music while you drive. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And even though today because of sin it is deeply broken, it is still good. Some people have said that because of how broken creation is, that explains why People experience gender in different ways and and experience sexuality in different ways. And I would say, I think that's actually true. We are broken, but the thing is, that doesn't mean that we're given freedom to follow our hearts and our feelings any way we'd like to. God has called all of us to holiness. You could be a straight, red-blooded male. You are called to perfect purity until you are married and perfect fidelity when you are married. Doesn't matter what you feel in your heart or how right something feels. What matters is what God has called you to in holiness. And if you're single, honestly, your your sexual attractions don't matter much unless you allow them to possess you and dominate your life. What matters is your obedience to God's command to purity. And so, The commands of Scripture apply to everyone. And yes, in our brokenness, we're going to struggle with them in different ways. But the hope is that we have a Savior who loves us, who has come to heal us. And Christ, in his teaching, affirms this passage in Genesis. Some people have falsely said that Jesus kind of changes things when he comes, that the Old Testament's kind of harsh, but Jesus is full of mercy. Jesus is full of mercy, so is the Old Testament. Jesus affirms this exact passage when when he's asked about divorce. Here's what he says. This is from Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 to 6. Jesus answered and said, Have you not read? By the way, he's implying you should read your Bible that you can find answers and truth when you read your Bible. And he's talking about the book of Genesis that you all have in your Bible. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So in the teaching of Jesus, he is affirming this is true. And then he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Jesus' teaching on marriage. He believes that man is made to marry a woman. 
And anything else is not a union of two different people. It's a broken union that's trying to imitate something that God created and blessed, but it's not right. Jesus' teaching doesn't water that down or change it. He calls all of us to holiness. He's rebuking a divorce culture that was very liberal in his day. You want to talk about sexism? They would divorce their wives if the food wasn't good enough. And they would leave them in poverty and destitute. And Jesus said, that's not how God made it. God made you to hold fast to your, life, to your wife. The two become one flesh. And he's rebuking straight people. He's, he's not saying something intended to be mean to those that don't fit those categories. He's teaching what God intends for marriage. And guys, I feel like some of the reason our culture is where it is is because we've not worked hard on our marriages. Now, there have been people who have. But as a whole, our culture has been enormously permissive in divorcing for the smallest of reasons and leaving kids confused growing up without a dad or a mom and trying to figure out, what does it mean to be a dad? Well, if you don't have a dad to help you learn, it's hard to figure it out. And even if you do have a dad to help you learn, he's broken too. So the truth is, some of the past history of our culture has left us in this place, and I believe that we must go to the Word of God to understand how to put it in practice as a nation, as a community, as a church, as families, and as people. And now some of you are asking this question, you know, how does this affect me? Why, why are you even preaching on this? Why are you even going here? You know, it's kind of like you're guaranteed to make somebody mad, maybe everybody. How does it affect me? Well, it does on a deeply personal level. Almost everyone here knows someone who will wrestle with their gender identity. Whether or not they'll talk to you about it is another issue. My question for you is, are you prepared to love them as a fellow human made in the image of God? Are you ready to be like Jesus who is full of grace and truth? And I want to come back to that point in just a second. Because one of our goals as a church and as a, as a people is we must be ready to protect the vulnerable and to love all people with the good news of Jesus Christ. If you see somebody who, who seems like they're maybe trying to express themselves in a different way and something just seems kind of off, you love that person. You love that person as someone who's made in the image of God. And you would better not be proud or feel like you're better than they are because you don't share in the same feelings that they have. The truth is Jesus is your Savior and you need a Savior just as bad as anybody else. So I want to come back to that in a second. It, but it affects you because you know someone who's dealing with this. I guarantee it. Number two, it affects us nationally. Uh, partly why I'm doing this now, there's been some legislation recently that passed the House of Representatives called the Equality Act. Sounds awesome. Like, obviously, we want equal fairness for everyone. But the way the law is written is it mandates that any public facility must give full unfettered access to anyone who experiences their gender however they feel it. So whether it's a public school locker room, whether it's a bathroom at Walmart, the law from a federal level all the way down to the local level mandates that open access be given to anybody. And this is not like California. This is not like a fringe, super liberal society. This is now our, our nation's legislator. It's actually the second time it passed the House of Representatives. Nobody knows if it's going to pass the Senate. And in many ways, I don't mention this to scare you or to bother you. All I want to say is that we ought to be praying for our, our legislators and for our president, that we have just laws. One of the real concerns is that this opens a door so that ladies are more vulnerable. Because you cannot legally hinder or restrict access to any person until something terrible has already happened. Without a criminal record, you can't say, I'm sorry, sir, you can't go in there. Because it's illegal. And our passion for the vulnerable and for the oppressed has got to remember why we have separate bathrooms in the first place. It's intended to give our ladies, especially, privacy and protection 
so that predators don't have as easy access to them. Now, is it perfect? No. But does that mean we should just get rid of all distinctions? I don't think so. Now, is there a wise way that we can love the marginalized? I don't know. The law specifically says you cannot offer a separate facility. So, so many schools have been saying, okay, you, you don't want to use the boys' locker room? Here, use a family restroom. It's a private one-stall field. You can use this. That's not allowed because that's deemed bigotry. Because you're not allowing them to express how they feel internally. And I don't believe that's just or wise. I believe our culture will reap a generation of deep hurt the longer we pursue this kind of equality. It explicitly says that no institution, so like Moody Bible Institute where I went, or, or any Christian school like Genesee Christian School locally, no institution is allowed to claim the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was passed in the 90s under Bill Clinton. He said that'd be null and void. You can't say, this is my religious conviction. This actually trumps that law. And so I mention this to you because it will affect you nationally. There's a bill now that could change the way Genesee School operates, Genesee Christian School operates. It talks about hiring practices. Uh, and so if a, a person decides they want to express themselves as a different gender and they want to work for a Christian school, the Christian school is obligated to not discriminate on the basis of gender and so if your little boy has a teacher that is biologically male but wants to express themselves as a female, Genesee Christian School can't say anything about it. And it's a law that I believe is going to be deeply harmful. And so I'm preaching this message, reminding you what God said, not because I want to scare you with this stuff, but because I want you to be in prayer about our nation, be weeping for what's broken, and pray for God's wisdom and healing for people who are suffering now. So it affects you nationally. And I'm sorry, this might take just a little bit of time, but I think it's worth it. It affects us as a church, especially as the American Baptist Church Association. Um, this is not as true regionally in Michigan, uh, but in January of 2019, um, I received the American Baptist Home Mission Magazine, published it quarterly, came out in January 2019. And Dr. Molly T. Marshall, who is then the president of Central Baptist Seminary, uh, she's now the interim president for United Theological Seminary, she wrote an article uh, in The Christian Citizen entitled, Toward Non-Gendered Language for God. And what she said was that we need to be careful in how we use pronouns especially, and how we use father language when we refer to God, because we can deeply offend people who don't fit into the binary of male and female. And that idea runs smack into the fact that Jesus taught us to pray our father, right? So if we're believing that Jesus wants us to pray in this way, well, she says, well, you know what? She actually teaches that the Bible has been distorted by sexist men to preserve the patriarchy. Now, this is not some radical prof out in some isolated liberal seminary. This magazine was sent to every American Baptist church in the country. And she is trying to say, church, don't believe what the word of God tells you about God. Follow the spirit and be open to how God might manifest himself to you. Friends, that is straight heresy. You cannot dismiss the scriptures and say they are a product of sinful, broken men. The scriptures, as Jesus teaches, are the word of God. And anyone, I don't care if she's the president of a seminary or not, anyone who teaches you to dismiss what Jesus says is a liar. And she is training generations of pastors and seminary professors to disregard the word of God about what God has said about himself. This means that the next generation of ministers trained at these seminaries are going to go to churches and they're going to teach people, oh, no, 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 no. You can't refer to God like that. 
Try to be as gender neutral as possible because you don't want to offend somebody. When God has told us how we ought to talk to him, and I believe part of the reason nationally the American Baptist Church is suffering is because of damnable heresy like that. And they're not hiding it. They're publishing it and sending it to every church. Saints, this is a big deal. This is going to leave people in their brokenness. This is lying to people about who God is. And I hope it bothers you. Molly Marshall is clearly and unapologetically teaching that John's gospel, especially, does not contain Jesus' words, but instead, she claims, John's gospel is a distortion of Jesus' teaching. She has no proof of that. The church has accepted John's gospel universally for 2,000 years. Doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Lutheran, all of us believe John's gospel accurately teaches us about Jesus and what he said and what he taught. But now, she rejects it as God's revealed word, and instead suggests that it's the product of sexist men who wanted to control women. Her teaching says you cannot trust the Bible. Never mind that Jesus himself teaches that the Bible is the word of God. And so it affects you because it affects our association. It affects every church in our association. The seeds of this kind of false teaching were sowed decades ago when people began to notice verses that they felt like weren't fair. And they said, well, that can't apply to us. That's cultural. And friends, if we dismiss part of the word of God, C.S. Lewis says, it's not going to come away cleanly. Before long, you're not going to believe any of it. And so this kind of teaching that's out there in the culture is not just out there in the culture, it's in our seminaries and it's in our churches. It not only affects you because it affects our nation, it affects our association, it will affect us locally in how people build buildings and how people build bathrooms. It'll affect you when you decide whether or not you're going to let your kid go to, into a bathroom by yourself. It'll affect you when you watch local athletics, now I understand it's rare, it's, it's not super common that you're going to have a, a person who identifies as a different gender want to compete in women's sports. Title IX exists so that women have a space to excel and be awesome. And when you allow someone who has had the benefit of testosterone from in utero all the way through puberty to compete in the same grouping, it's no longer a safe place for equal competition. So the Equality Act would kind of ruin girls' sports. And I don't want to be too extremist or anything, but I want to say, like, do we love women anymore? Should we love women anymore? Do we need to make space for people that don't fit comfortably in their categories? Absolutely, we want to love them, but we also want to protect our girls. It, it will affect you in those ways. It will affect you in your family, and it will affect our church as we try to understand how God has made us to function as men and women within a local congregation. So if you're wondering, why do I talk about this when guaranteed somebody's going to be mad? It's because it affects us on every level. So the question is, what do we do about it? Um, I've got a couple points of application. If, you, if you've got your bulletin, if you've got your notes, I left you some blanks because I really wanted to stress a couple of words in particular. What do we do with the teaching that God has made us male and female in his image? Uh, number one, and this is hard for some people, but number one, we need to celebrate goodness. Celebrate goodness. If you're single and you want to date, enjoy dating. Enjoy the pursuit. Celebrate how God has made you and look for a mate who loves the Lord and enjoy how God has made you. If you're married, enjoy your differences and grow in the image of God as you come together. Celebrate goodness. Be intentional about celebrating it. Love attending weddings and celebrating with young people who are starting this journey 
Give good wedding presents. Give good advice. Enjoy the way God has made us. But number two, mourn brokenness. Mourn brokenness. And that applies no matter how you feel internally. But I want to mention a guy by name, and maybe you want to write this down. I I don't know. I can give you information later. Uh, Walt Heyer. Walt Heyer is a guy that that has a ministry. Uh, He was a man who, uh, from a time he was very, very young, felt like he should be a girl. Uh, and, and he grew up and tried to like repress those feelings. Uh, he, he had a family and, and was just deeply unhappy, ended up going through a divorce. And for eight years after he divorced, he lived as a woman and pursued gender reassignment surgery all the way. And he leads an organization now for those who experience sex change regret. Walt Heyer is a guy that says, Let's put the brakes on this for just a little bit and talk about the fact that people are suicidal after they try to go through this transition. Let's understand that that I did not experience peace when I pursued my internal feelings. And so I will point you to his testimony and the thousands of people that have agreed with his testimony and said, thank you for saying this because you're helping me express my fear and my, my regrets. Mourn brokenness for people who struggle like Walt. And now his ministry, is, he, he wants to prevent some of the pain that he's experienced. And I want to say a word to you, like repent of unkindness. If your kids or your grandkids have heard you say things like, look at that freak. Well, that was deeply wrong. It was sinful. And you owe them an apology. If you have been unkind to someone who's made in the image of God because of how they look, I don't care why. It's not right. That person's not going to love you or come to Christ. So mourn brokenness and recognize your own brokenness. Repent of unkindness. Apologize. And I want to say a word. If you don't feel like a man or a woman, then let me urge you as part of mourning brokenness to trust your maker and to pursue holiness. Jesus talked about taking up a cross when you follow him, and I believe that's a universal call. Denying yourself is something that every person does when they come to Christ. And so if you say, I don't fit within what the Bible says, well, none of us fit within God's standard of holiness. That's true of everyone. So would you pursue holiness and follow Christ with your life, even if you struggle with your identity? Number three, Trust your lifeline. And what I mean by that is trust the word of God to bless you and not to hurt you. Even when Hebrews says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts to the bone and marrow, that's saying sometimes truth hurts. It does. And I want to urge you to trust the word of God even when it hurts. Number four, as we put this into application, Be prayerful and patient. Be prayerful and patient. And depending on who you are, you're going to understand that in a different way. So be prayerful and patient. If you're somebody that's you're comfortable in your gender and and you're happily married and whatever, okay, be a safe person to talk to. And parents and grandparents, you need to initiate conversations with your kids and your grandkids. Don't wait for them to come to you. You are the last person they will come to to start a conversation. They're going to Google it first, and then they're going to find someone who kind of affirms the way they feel already. And by the time you find out about their choices that are contrary to the word of God, it is going to be way too late to ever begin a conversation. So here's how you need to die to yourself. You need to die to your comfort. It's comfortable to ignore a problem and to not have a conversation. Die to your comfort and start asking questions and start listening and be a safe person. If you've ever made fun of people who are gay, if you have ever used inappropriate language, especially in front of your kids, that has been demeaning or derogatory, you need to apologize and repent. Be a safe person to talk to and initiate conversations and recognize that a single conversation is not going to change things. 
Rather, be prayerful and patient. When we are trying to raise up the next generation, we are doing a work that will take a lifetime. So be diligent and faithful in prayer and be patient. Not every conversation is going to go well. You know why? Because just like you, your kids are sinners. So be prayerful and patient. Now maybe you are a person that experiences some of this, and and I would ask that you would be prayerful and patient with yourself. Be prayerful and patient with older people that this is a new and weird conversation. They've not thought through it. They'll say all kinds of things meaning well that are deeply insulting and hurtful. So be prayerful and patient with those who love you, who want to take care of you. Be prayerful and patient towards your government. And let me say that if you worry about legislation, do you pray about legislation? If you are disappointed in our president and in our nation's leaders, do you pray for them? Do you pray for our local superintendents and principals who will be the boots on the ground for legislation like this? Or do you just try to shelter your kids and say, you know, it's not going to affect me? I would urge you, saints, this is an issue that we must be patient and prayerful with ourselves, with our families, with our government. Scripture says, have mercy on those who doubt. And it's not talking about those who doubt their gender. It's talking about those who doubt Christ. That's the thing that matters most. As you pursue your inner heart, if you don't know the Lord, it doesn't matter what's in your heart. It leads to an eternity separated from God where there will be no joy. So have mercy on those who doubt Christ in any way and love them by faithfully praying for them, faithfully confessing your own sins and coming back to Jesus again and again, remembering his love for you. Number five, as we apply this, I'm going to use the phrase, do no harm. Do no harm, right? It's from the Hippocratic Oath. Here's what I mean by that. Number one, we must be a church where anyone and everyone is welcome to hear the good news preached. And we preach it patiently. Christians, we are to sharpen each other and to urge each other on as we follow Jesus. Our business is not to judge the world. God will do that. Our business is to follow Jesus and to call others to do the same, to preach the gospel boldly and faithfully. And we take up our cross and we follow Christ. So do no harm as a church and as a Christian. But here's one thing that might sound deeply insensitive, and I want to say it anyway because I love you. Do no harm to your body if you want to pursue a different gender. Um, Planned Parenthood is offering hormone therapy to young kids without parental consent so that if they want to delay puberty, they can privately take pills that will put it off. Those pills will put you at greater risk for different types of cancer. And frankly, they do not know if you would ever be able to resume the natural course of puberty if you go off of them. You may do irreversible damage to your body by taking a pill And so I want to say to you, if if you are not comfortable with who you are, do no harm to your body. Don't pursue surgeries that are irreversible. At least, at a bare minimum, wait until you are an adult. Do no harm to your own body. Here is the greatest danger. And this is my last point of application. The greatest danger in all of this no matter where you fit on a gender spectrum or where you fit with sexual orientation, you could be straight and happily married. The greatest danger in all of this is missing Christ because of our inner longings. Jesus warned some of his harshest words were to people who had no time for him because they were getting married or they were going about business. And so the call of Christ on their life fell on deaf ears because they were too busy for it. He didn't look out a particular type of sinner and say, those people are beyond redemption. Here's the crowd that I like. We're all going to heaven. He gave a universal call. And what happened in the ministry of Christ is that sinners answered the call first. He told the Pharisees, he said, tax collectors and prostitutes are going to heaven before you guys are. 
because they heard the message of the kingdom and they repented. So saints, here's the danger of the culture war. If you're a radical conservative and you're ready to fight, you might miss the call of Jesus on your life. You might not repent. And all of us need our Savior Jesus. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your head, close your eyes. I've said some things that, that, that are not popular in a lot of ways. Here's what matters most, is that you take your brokenness to Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is, but you recognize your need for forgiveness from a Savior who loves you, who died for you, who rose from the dead. And so I want to invite you now to lay your brokenness at his feet. If you know people you love and you're concerned about it because it looks like they're walking away from Christ, that's the number one battle we want to wage as a church. We want to bring people to Jesus. We want to bring all people to Jesus. And so maybe you know Jesus and you're confident in in your walk with him. Take this time to pray for somebody that you're concerned about. Father, you have given us your word as a blessing. Scripture teaches that we have eternal life through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that all of our hope, all of our faith would be in you. That we would be faithful in confessing our sins. And God, I want to confess that as a church, we've not been good at talking about some of these things. We've not always been loving. Sometimes we have been judgmental. Perhaps often we've been judgmental. Father, I pray that you'd have mercy and forgive us for when we haven't represented the love of Jesus. Father, I pray for those who hear your commands to holiness and it feels like a death sentence. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, they would respond to your call. They would ask you to wash them, to cleanse them of their sins, and that they would pursue holiness and obedience. Father, would you draw people now by your spirit to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, to a life of obedience? Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, son that you love from all of eternity, who died and rose again, who lives and reigns in power, He's taught us to lay our requests with you and to know with confidence that you love us and love to give good gifts as we call on you and as we ask. And so we pray in faith, believing that you forgive and that you heal and that you empower. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.